morning. Scripture reading is from 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Last week, we began looking at this letter that the Apostle Peter, maybe the, maybe the most well-known of all of Jesus' apostles and friends, uh, Peter wrote to a bunch of Christians in the first century living in Asia Minor on some hard times. And what we saw last week in the first two verses of this letter uh, was that Peter was saying, this is how a Christian can survive as a stranger in a strange world. Uh, survival, living as an exile in a world that is not our own, depends upon critical knowledge. We talked about being able to survive in this world follow, as a follower of Jesus. Your survival is dependent upon critical knowledge of your chosen status. That God knows you, God has equipped you, and Jesus Christ protects you. God the Father knows you and has adopted you. God the Spirit has, is sanctifying you, has equipped you, and God the Son protects you by his own blood and power. But that, so that's the critical knowledge that we need to survive and to thrive in this world. But knowledge must be employed, right? Knowledge must produce action. Isn't that true? Let me ask you a question. What takes us from knowledge to action? Can I get the next slide, Sarah? For some reason, this thing isn't working. It's on now. Thank you. Let me ask you a question. What takes us, and it can be in any field of activity, any, any endeavor in life, in faith itself, what takes a person from knowledge into action? What do you think? Yeah. Conviction. So moving from knowledge into conviction based upon that knowledge, and then out of that conviction, um, you act. Good thought. Okay, so conviction, yeah. 
Confidence, okay. Conviction and confidence. Confidence in that knowledge. Yeah. That the knowledge is true. Truth and confidence that the knowledge is correct and true. That will move you into action, yeah. Necessity. How many of us have, how many of us have had to act because of necessity many times when you otherwise would not have acted? Yeah, and the, somebody in the back, yeah. Okay. Seeing, seeing action exemplified in somebody that you respect and trust. Good. Yeah. Discipline. Moving from um, knowledge to action takes discipline. Okay. Yeah. Opportunity. Sometimes we can't act without the opportunity. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Was there a hand here? No. You're just scratching your head. Yeah. Planning. Okay. It ta- action takes some planning. Good. Good thought. Yeah. Belief. Okay. So, so there's knowledge and there's belief, which are not necessarily the same thing. And Peter's going to talk about that. Good. I'm glad you brought it up. One more. I saw another hand. Yeah. Okay, a variety of feelings, empathy, sympathy, desire. Was there, was there another? Yeah, interesting. So everything everybody's saying is really helpful. And then the last two comments were, uh, beyond knowledge, you need belief. And beyond knowledge, something has to move you. The, the old Puritans, hundreds of years ago, they used the word called affections with an A, meaning the, that which is in you, deep within, that motivates you. Uh, that inspires and grieves and, and fulfills you. Good. So there's knowledge, um, and there must be action based upon that knowledge. Knowledge alone isn't, isn't going to get us anywhere. You can have the critical knowledge that Peter was talking about in the first two verses of his letter, but if you don't do anything with that knowledge, uh, you may stay right where you are in your journey. You may get into a lot of trouble. Peter says... It's hard to see it, but it's in this passage that Kate just read. Peter says, what takes the Christian from knowledge to action is love. Not only love, love that is expressed through joy. Without love, faith has no expression. Without love, knowledge becomes vain. God's salvation, God's salvation that Peter's talking about here, that describes Christianity, God's salvation produces in the Christian a love, a joyful love. And we're going to talk about what that love looks like. For now, I just want to say that love makes a strange journey in a world not your own, endurable. And so Peter, we're going to see Peter talk about the facts of our salvation And the fruits of our salvation. The facts of salvation. And the fruits of salvation. In order to remind these early first century Christians. About the facts of their salvation. Peter unleashes a series of run on sentences. Doesn't he? 
You have to breathe several times just by reading the sentences that Kate just read. They are extremely long sentences and and really difficult to digest at first and second glance. But this is one of the New Testament's brightest passages. This is one of the mountain peaks of the New Testament, the way Peter is describing salvation. He says, spiritually speaking, because God is merciful, he gives you a second chance. He uses the word born again. He says, you've been born again. God has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That phrase born again is used so often in the news and in movies and in TV shows and in popular literature. Born again in our culture, it has a political, cultural, social connotation to it, doesn't it? That's not how Peter used it. It wasn't a cultural term. It wasn't a political term. It literally meant to be born a second time, to be reborn. And what Peter is saying here is that for the follower of Jesus, for the Christian, God, because he's merciful, gives you a second chance at life. He says, you get to start over again on my terms. Everything that's been happening, you can cancel it out and start over again. I'm going to give you a new beginning, a new start, a new foundation for your life. Because because God resurrected Jesus from the dead, God resurrects your soul from death to life. That's what being born again means. But it's more than that, Peter says. This new life has permanent significance. It's not just significant, it's permanent. What does he say? He says that Christians have an inheritance that is imperishable. It's imperishable because, Peter goes on to say, it's kept in heaven for you. Now, I'm going to inherit some things. You may inherit something from your parents or from your grandparents or from your family, right? One of the things I'm excited to inherit are my father's vintage Lionel trains from the 1950s. Right now, here's the thing with something you're planning to inherit. It's stored up for you in this world, in this life, and it is not invulnerable to rust or theft or decay or earthquake or hurricane or flood or fire. Even your inheritance that is guaranteed to you by your loved ones or even on a legal document is not 100 percent surely going to be yours because it can be compromised. But Peter is saying that the Christian has an inheritance created by God that is imperishable, indestructible, kept in heaven for you. Your inheritance given to you by God is kept in heaven with him. And so it's absolutely sure it's unshakable. Peter says that this inheritance that you get following Jesus is so durable that nothing in this life can shake it. Not even trials, he says. Not even your sufferings can shake what God has done for you. In fact, Peter says that your sufferings, as long as you trust God in your sufferings, your sufferings only prove the durability of your faith. Your sufferings only prove the unshakable nature of your inheritance. Isn't that ironic that, that for the Christian, God can take your worst moments in life, your, your biggest failures, your greatest difficulties, and use them to prove that what he's doing in you and what he's done for you can't be taken away from you. 
That's what Peter's saying. So this, this salvation is so awesome. Peter says that the ancient Hebrew prophets strained themselves to understand it. That the, the Old Testament prophets strained themselves to understand how it would happen. And when it would happen. And who would bring it to pass. The ancient prophet Moses, he said that, that a prophet, another prophet greater than him was going to come. And David, the king of Israel, he said another king, a great king, was going to come. And Isaiah, the prophet, said some servant of the Lord is, is going to someday come. And they didn't necessarily believe that all these things were going to be wrapped up in one person. But they believed in God's salvation, although they couldn't see it. This salvation, Peter says in verse 12, is so awesome that even angels are amazed by it. Think about that for a second. That angelic beings are amazed by God's salvation, by our salvation. The way one New Testament scholar translates it is that angels strain themselves, leaning in to catch a glimpse at what God is doing in you if you're a Christian. That angelic beings outside of time and space are actually leaning in, leaning in to the window to try and see what God is doing. So God, because of his mercy, has given the Christian new life, an indestructible inheritance through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to the amazement of prophets and angels. Now, how can you know that this salvation is yours? How can you know with confidence that Peter's talking about you? Well, there are fruits to salvation. Salvation does produce something in this life, not just after you die. There, 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 there is fruit now. And if you pay... Peter doesn't spend a lot of time focusing on it in the passage. You have to pay attention. But he brings it up. Salvation is yours if it's producing in you a love and joy for Jesus. There it is. Verse 8. Peter says, though you, he's talking about Jesus. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And, are, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And so we see here from Peter that knowledge doesn't drive the Christian life. Love does. Saving faith, the kind of faith the Bible talks about, faith converts knowledge into love. That's the missing link. Without love, you're not going to get from faith to action. Jonathan Edwards, hundreds of years ago, he talked about, he wrote about something he called a divine and supernatural light. And what he was trying to say was that, that God, and only, you can't whip this up for yourself, that God only uh, gives to you as a gift the ability to recognize his goodness, to appreciate. You can't do it on your own. There's a place in there's a place in Matthew's gospel where Jesus says, who do you guys think I am? And Jesus, uh, Peter says to Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. 
And Jesus replies to him, hey, you're blessed, but guess what? You didn't get that from yourself. You got, God gave that fact to you. And so Jonathan Edwards says that's a divine and supernatural light that God grants to people, enabling them to appreciate his goodness and his beauty. And, and Jonathan Edwards used the illustration of honey to explain what he meant. There's a difference between rationally understanding that honey is sweet. Honey is sweet and horseradish is bitter. There's a difference between understanding and comprehending that honey is sweet and appreciating honey's sweetness. And he says that's, that's how it is with Jesus. There's a difference between knowing the truth about Jesus and understanding the facts and making an intellectual or logical assent to Jesus and biblical Christianity. But it's another thing to experience the sweetness of Jesus. And that's really what, how Peter can say, hey, you've never seen him, but you love him. There's, there, uh, there's a movie, uh, there's an Irish movie called Waking Ned Divine. And, and in the middle, there's this little boy named Norris, and he's, 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 uh, he's friends with, uh, with a priest. And uh, it's a small Irish community. And one day, Norris and the priest are talking, and Norris is very perplexed that the priest is working for Jesus, but he can't see Jesus. And, and the priest says, oh, do you think you could be drawn to the church, Norris? And, 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 you know, the priest is saying, hey, do you think you could ever work, work in the church? And, and Norris says, I don't think I could work for someone I've never met and not get paid for it. And you can see in Norris a very good point, a very important point. How do you work for somebody that you've never met and doesn't reward you in the way that you would like to be rewarded? Since you can't see Jesus, how do you know you love him? If you're a Christian, how do you know you love him? If you're not a Christian, how do you, how do you know he's real? Well, Peter says, such love is accompanied by an inexpressible joy. As the New International Version puts it, an inexpressible and glorious joy. Have you ever asked yourself, what does the Bible mean by joy? What really is joy? I think the way we use the word joy culturally is uh, we, we kind of treat it like we treat the word happiness. Okay? And, and happiness, in my opinion, happiness is feeling blessed because of your good situation. You've got something to be happy about because how things are going. Feeling blessed because of your situation. The way the Bible uses joy is like this. Joy is feeling blessed regardless of your situation. Because of what God has done for you. The word joy in the Bible is always connected to what God does for somebody. Regardless of the circumstances. Joy is the reason why Peter is less concerned about your struggles than you are. Notice in this entire passage, he mentions in the middle, oh, yeah, and um, uh, by the way, you may have to suffer for a little while. And then he moves on. Somebody once told me, Brian, God is not even close to as concerned about what you're worried about as you are. God cares far less about our struggles and our pains and our fears than we do. Why? Because he's, because he's cold? No, because he knows what the outcome's going to be. 
He's, he's got Peter's, Peter's got God's perspective here. Your trials are only that big of a deal because look at what you're headed for. Look at what God is preparing for you. With joy, your trials are less significant. Somebody once said, even in the midst of heaviness itself, such is this joy that it can maintain itself in the midst of sorrows. This oil of gladness still swims above and cannot be drowned by all the floods of affliction. Yea, it is most often sweet in the greatest distress. So the fruit of salvation, the proof of salvation in you is a love, is a joyful love for Jesus. That's what Peter says. And you don't have to see Jesus to believe him and to love him. Peter remembered decades before he wrote this letter, this moment when the risen Jesus appeared to him and to all the others. And there's his friend, Thomas, Thomas the skeptic, who said, I'm not going to believe it unless I can stick my fingers in his wounds. And so Jesus appears to Thomas and Thomas believes. But do you remember what Jesus said to Thomas? Because Peter would never forget it. Jesus said to Thomas, oh, you believe because you see me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Are you asking yourself right now, hey, why don't I see this fruit in my Christian faith? Why don't I know a a love for Jesus and a joy for him? Or if you're not a Christian, if you're or if you're not a follower of Jesus, are you asking, how could I ever have that kind of motivation for somebody I don't know and have never met? Who lived 2000 years ago? Those are great questions. And that's exactly where Peter wants us. Let me ask you a question, though. If if you're not seeing love, if you're not seeing joy In this person, Jesus, let me ask you, I know you can't see him physically, but what are you looking at? Ask yourself that if you don't see love and if you don't see joy, what are you looking at? I'm convinced that we care more about what we see now than what we can't see yet. We're very much focused on what we see right here in this life and in our predicament. Maybe you're looking at your earthbound treasures, your earthbound priorities and plans and comforts and habits. And, you know, Jesus warned people against this. He said in Matthew chapter six, he said to his followers, why do you worry about the things that everybody else worries about? What you're going to wear and what you're going to eat and where you're going to live. Why do you worry about these things? God knows you need them. Worrying about all that stuff isn't going to add a single day to your life. Or a single inch to your head. Why do you worry about that? And then um, we also, not, not only do we focus on and obsess over our earthbound treasures, but we obsess over our present trials and sufferings. We, we obsess over, we kind of cherish and coddle our struggles and our difficulties, our failures, our heartaches, our disappointments. Many year, uh, several years ago in New York, I met an old Jewish woman. She was an atheist, and she was a poet. Uh, she was a delightful woman, and we were both in the hospital uh, 
we were in a waiting room in the hospital. And we began talking about faith, the nature of faith. She told, I, I told her I was a Christian, and she said to me, I, she said that she loved the idea of Christianity. She said that the Christian message and the gospel, the good news, was a beautiful idea. She was attracted to the idea of God becoming a human being to suffer in our place, to take, to take our punishment upon himself, to be crucified, and then to rise from the dead. She loved the idea, but she said she couldn't believe it. We kept talking, and uh, what, what she revealed to me was the root of her unbelief was tragedy. When she was a little girl, her father died, and she remembers seeing, this was the old tradition, uh, she remembers seeing um, her uncles uh, cleaning uh, her father's body and preparing it for burial. And she said, as an old woman, she said, when I was a little girl and I saw my father's body, I stopped believing. Peter knew that his readers were struggling. And God's spirit knows that I struggle and that you struggle. And we look at, a, we look at what's around us and it's, it's so hard to have joy in our lives. And you start wondering, do I even love this guy that I sing to? And then I pray to and then I talk to people about. Do I even love him? Do I have a joy for him? Life is so hard. And, and Peter understood that. That's why he talks about trials. But, but the reason Peter writes this litany of amazing run-on sentences is, is because he's trying to get you past looking at your suffering. Looking at what you can only see and feel right now. He wants you to... to, to Get your head out of the mess and think about your future. Think about all that God has done for you. Think about all that is possible if you will trust this Jesus and stake your life on him and not yourself. Think about going on a journey because that's what we're talking about. We're exiles. We're strangers in a world that's not our own and we're on this journey. What keeps you going on a journey? The flat tire keeps you going. Losing your credit card in St. Louis keeps you going. Spraining your ankle on a hike, that keeps you going? What keeps you going is the destination. What keeps you going is knowing where you're going to. As long as we identify with what we see here, whether it's good or bad, whether we cherish all the good things that we have or whether we coddle our sufferings and are living a pity party and can only focus on what, what's happening that's terrible... As long as we identify ourselves with what we see here, we will not find joy in Jesus. We will not find awe like the angels do when they look at the salvation that God has accomplished for us and this inheritance that he's prepared for us. Maybe you can't really see Jesus for who he is because you're just staring at your treasures and you're just staring at your suffering and you cherish those more. But I'm going to ask you, to look at Jesus for a moment. Consider Jesus. I don't mean like look at him. He's right there. I mean think about him. Strain yourself to consider Jesus. Meditate on him. The Bible, the, the book of Hebrews in the Bible, it describes Jesus as the founder of salvation. It all comes from him. He started it. He accomplishes it. He provides it. 
And I want you to look at Jesus in this way. I want you to consider what the angels see. Did you ever think somebody would ever ask you that question? To think about things as an angel would see it? Because what in the world do we know about angels? Almost nothing. But that's what I'm asking you to do. Why do you think these matters amaze the angels? Why do you think angels long to look into the salvation that God has accomplished? The old Puritan poet John Milton thought about this. He wrote this really long epic poem called Paradise Lost. And in this book, he, he, he describes like a movie maker would do today. Okay? He describes artistically what it must have been like for Adam and Eve to fall out of God's grace in rebellion in the ancient um, prehistoric garden. And what it must have been like in the heavens as a result of that, trying to save man and, and woman from their nasty predicament. It's a very long poem. It's an imaginative poem. And what Milton, what, what John Milton does is he sets up the scene. Uh, the serpent, you know, Satan gets into the garden. He messes everything up. Adam and Eve rebel. And now God is in heaven. And he says to the hosts of heaven, hey, what are we going to do about this? And Milton puts it this way. God speaks. Man with his whole posterity must die. Die he or justice must, unless for him some other able and willing pay the rigid satisfaction, death for death. Say, heavenly powers, where shall we find such love? And Milton says that nobody said a word in all of heaven. He asked, but all the heavenly choirs stood mute. Silence was in heaven. Nobody spoke up, not a single angel. What could they say? What could they do? But then the Son of God replies and answers the Father. And Jesus says, and these are Milton's imaginative words. Father, man shall find grace. Behold me then, me for him. Life for life I offer on me. Let thine anger fall. Account me man, and I for his sake will leave thy bosom and this glory next to thee freely put off, and for him lastly die. Well pleased on me, let death wreak all his rage. And then Milton says the angels are witnessing this moment. And he replies, speaking of Jesus, his meek aspect, silent yet spake. And breathed immortal love to mortal men. As a sacrifice glad to be offered. He attends the will of his great father. And this is the point that I think Peter's trying to make. Milton says admiration seized all heaven. With what this might mean. And whither tend wondering. The angels are amazed by the gospel. Because Jesus didn't become an angel to save angels. Jesus became a human to save us. And that amazes them. It was again in the book of Hebrews in the Bible where the author says, surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. You don't have to be Jewish to be an offspring of Abraham. Anybody who trusts in Jesus by faith, the Bible says, is a descendant of Abraham. It's by faith, not by genetics. 
It's not the angels that he helps. He helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And so if you're a follower of Jesus or if you want to be one, you are blessed because prophets have searched and apostles have proclaimed and angels wonder at the salvation that God has accomplished for you. When you begin to experience the sweetness of Jesus, who for love's sake did that for you, then you'll begin to love him back with a joy. The love and the joy for him will come as you begin to taste the sweetness of Jesus, of what he, who he is and what he's done for you. So that love, a joyful love, makes, makes this life endurable. It will make your journey here, though hard, endurable. This joyful love for Jesus that Peter talks about. So I want to encourage you. Let's ask God for the kind of faith that looks to what you can't see. Look, the kind of faith that looks beyond what you're seeing right now to what you cannot see, which is Jesus and the amazing inheritance that he offers. So as a church, let's be intent. Let's be as intent to strain ourselves as the old prophets were in understanding who this Jesus is. And I guarantee if we strain ourselves to understand Jesus, we will become as amazed as the angels are. When they look at all that God has done for us. Let's pray. Father we ask that. That you would grant us. A love a joyful love for your son. That goes beyond our ability to express. We ask that you would help us to see our struggles. As Peter saw them. Not that big of a deal. Because of what you're going to do someday. As C.S. Lewis said. Father I ask for us. For the kind of faith. That will help us realize. That, that all this pain and suffering. Is just a small price to pay. For the glory. And the inheritance. Of what it will be like for us. When we become whole people. In the presence of your son. In his name we pray. Amen.